And um, if you remember chapter 7, so we're in Matthew, so the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5 through 7. And chapter 7 is all about relationships. It's all about how should we relate to other people, specifically other Christians. Um, How should we relate also to unbelievers? How should we relate to those who teach and preach God's word? Things like that. And then how should we relate to God? And it's obvious that Jesus knows that relationships are extremely difficult for us. If we trust our instinct, most of the time we get it wrong. Um, There is in all of us a selfishness that trumps our concern for others. And Jesus knows this, but he also calls his disciples to be different. He calls us to be different by his grace. And so I want us to just prayerfully consider uh, what Jesus is saying this morning to us, to his people, his disciples, uh, beginning in Matthew 7, verse 12. It says this. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Okay? Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. You've probably heard that before. That's commonly referred to as the golden rule. And at the time when Jesus said this, there was another version of this rule that was already well known throughout the entire world. Several hundred years earlier, a man named Confucius, you may have heard of him, had been credited with saying, Do not to others what you would not wish done to yourself. Does that sound similar? And then even in the Western culture, in in Jesus' culture, in the Jewish Talmud, which was also written a few hundred years before Jesus, it said this, Do not do to anyone what you yourself would hate. Do not do to anyone what you yourself would hate. Sounds similar, right? In fact, about 20 years before the birth of Jesus, there was a very famous rabbi named Rabbi Hillel. And he had said that that statement from the Talmud was, in his opinion, a summary of the entire Old Testament law. And that everything else was just commentary on that statement. And when Jesus spoke the words of the Sermon on the Mount, it was almost certainly common knowledge by the time he said this. Everybody had heard that rule. Don't do to people what you don't want them to do to you. But Jesus takes that rule and he flips it and he says it in the positive And what I want to suggest to you is that it changes the meaning considerably. Now, Jesus would certainly agree with the other rule. There's nothing wrong with that rule. But when he states it in the positive, he is taking the principle even further. So if I want to keep the negative sense of the golden rule, Um, do not do to anyone what you yourself would hate. 
I can keep that rule by remaining distant and autonomous from other people. I can stay in my lane, as they say, and avoid other people entirely. And of course, that is my right to do so. It keeps me from infringing upon the rights of other people. And so I can have for myself, by keeping that rule, a world where I offend no one and no one offends me. And perhaps civil discourse should end right there in terms of public application and how we see you know, our role in society. But Jesus is commanding his disciples to go further. Do the good you want done for you. Which requires us to ask the kind of question of, you know, how would I like to be treated in this situation? And that's what God is commanding. You want to be loved? Show love. You want to receive gifts? Give gifts. You want to be forgiven? Show forgiveness. And that makes it impossible for me to stay in my lane. It forces me to engage in relationships. As we've said before, you cannot keep God's law without being in relationships. Righteousness in the Bible is entirely relational. Christians do not have the luxury of pulling away when things get tough. And so, we have a tremendous responsibility to step outside of our cultural or even our personal comfort zones of radical individualism and move towards others, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because Jesus said so. More importantly, because that's what Jesus modeled for us by incarnating and pursuing people who don't really deserve it, even to the point of shedding His own blood. Because Jesus had the right to stay in heaven and leave us in our sin. Instead, He gave up those rights. He moved toward us. He dirtied Himself for our sakes. And so that's verse 12. Let's move on to verse 13. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. If you think about the way that the gospel is often presented to people today in our churches, there is very often an emphasis on trying to get people to accept Jesus, to accept the God of the Bible. And so preachers, you know, you go to church and they'll encourage you to accept Jesus into your life. Um, to accept Christ into your heart, right? And they'll talk about the forgiveness and the joy 
and the new life that's found in Christ. And all of that is true. All of that is true for the Christian. But sometimes in our efforts to convince people to accept God, we forget to present the whole truth. Because the primary question that the Bible is asking us is not if we will accept God. It's whether or not God will accept us. Jesus has already been very clear in Matthew that what is required for entrance into the kingdom of God is repentance and faith. More specifically, it's repentance of our sin and faith in Jesus Christ, someone who is outside of ourselves that is demonstrated by a growing trust in Dependence on and obedience to Christ. And Jesus illustrates this in verse 13 and 14 by describing two roads. And it's a picture that's very easy to understand. He's saying that one of these roads, one of these paths to salvation is narrow and difficult, but it leads to life. The other path is wide and Easy, but it leads to death. Very simple and effective. Um, raise your, I mean, has anybody not heard of Elon Musk? I think everybody's heard of him by now, right? Elon Musk has been in the news a lot lately because he just purchased um, Twitter. Musk is also famously non-religious. Um, a few months ago, someone asked him, about God and whether or not he was concerned with his final destination. So what's going to happen to you after you die kind of thing, right? And this is how he responded. He said, I'm okay with going to hell if that is indeed my final destination since the vast majority of all humans ever born will be there. Now, I'm willing to bet that Elon Musk doesn't believe in hell or heaven or even God. But he's referring to Matthew 7.13. And he's correct. If Jesus is speaking the truth, then the majority of all humans ever born on the earth will end up in hell. And I want you to just let that sink in for just a moment because that is exactly what Jesus says here. You see, a, more, a majority opinion about God, a majority opinion about who gets to heaven, about who goes to hell, about how we should live our lives, the majority opinion, according to Jesus, is wrong. And in fact, what he's saying is that most of the people who believe they're safe are wrong about it. And we're going to look at that even more next Sunday. 
Because in more than one place, Jesus says that many people will come to him on the last day, assuming that they are accepted by God. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. And I can feel the energy in the room, okay? I'm feeling it too. Um, This is intended to be sobering. It is meant to humble us. We are meant to search our hearts and to ask, how can I know that God will accept me, right? I mean, that's the point. That's what we're, we're getting around to. That's why Jesus says it. How can you know if God accepts you? If your instinct is to answer that question by naming all the reasons why you're a good person, that's the wrong answer. None of the people on the road to hell believe that they deserve hell. On the other hand, all of the people on the narrow road believe they absolutely deserve hell. And I want to say that again, just to make sure you heard me correctly. If your instinct is to name all the the reasons why you're a good person and God must accept you, that's the wrong answer. Because none of the people on the wide road to destruction, none of them think they deserve it. But the people on the narrow way, know that they deserve it. And if that sounds odd to you, let me remind you, this is the entire message of the Gospel, is that none of us deserves heaven. Not me. Not the best people in this room. None of us. It is not my righteousness that gets me into heaven. At the end of days, it will not be that I stand before the judge and I tally up all my good works and they're more than my bad stuff and therefore I'm in. That is not how it works. It will not be enough. And it would be unfair of God to let anyone in on that basis because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If I go to heaven, I believe it is because of my union with Christ Jesus and his righteousness that is not my own. And this leads us back to faith and repentance. Only people who believe they deserve hell will ever truly repent and trust in Jesus. You see how it works? The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And this leads us to what Jesus says next. Verse 15. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. 
but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus knows that many of the people who are on the wide road that he described are being led astray by false teachers. And this is probably the most common warning in the New Testament. Be careful who you listen to. Be careful because false teachers often look like the real thing. And Jesus uses another really simple illustration to make His point. He says, look at their fruit. But we should be asking what kind of fruit are we looking for, right? I mean, in today's society, what we're taught to look for is how successful is their ministry? How much money are they bringing in? How many people are in the seats? How many people are watching online? And that can be very deceiving. But what kind of fruit are we actually looking for? If you, if you think back over the Sermon on the Mount, the entire time Jesus has been presenting us with two options. Will we seek God's kingdom or the kingdom of this world? Will we stick to the rules of men or will we follow the spirit of God's law? Will we practice our righteousness to be seen by others or to be seen by God? Will we serve God or money? Two options. And there is no middle path. There is no other safe entry into God's kingdom. There's no third alternative. It is either God and life or the world and death. But what Jesus is saying to us is that the way of the world is seeking to deceive us into believing that we're on the road to safety. And that's why it is so important that we're careful about who we listen to and what we choose to believe. And so Jesus says to us, consider the fruit. And based upon what we read in the Sermon on the Mount, we may safely conclude that the fruit that Jesus wants us to look for is the character and conduct of someone who is living a life of repentance. We may look for this in ourselves and we should evaluate our own character and conduct by that measure, but we need to be especially careful to look for it in those who teach the Word of God. Now, we're not looking for perfection. Making a plug for myself here. I'm not perfect, okay? Um, We are looking for humility. The poor in spirit, the meek, the merciful, the pure in heart, peacemakers. And what do they all have in common? Humility. 
An arrogant preacher may say all the right words. And I know some guys who have pristine theology. And they are super arrogant. Okay? But if you don't see humility, find someone else to listen to. And I say that with some fear and conviction that I'm probably a hypocrite for saying it because I do know myself to be someone who struggles with my own self-importance and arrogance at times. But this is what Jesus tells the sheep. And if you don't see humility in me, find somewhere else to go to church. Pray for me to be humble. Pray for me to stick faithfully to what the Scriptures teach, but to do it with a spirit of humility. And if you don't see that, find somewhere else. Look for the fruit of repentance. But I also want to add something that Jesus doesn't say specifically in the Sermon on the Mount, but He does say it a few chapters later in Matthew about false teachers. We do need to judge teachers by their teaching specifically. Okay? So I want to make this clear. This is from Matthew 12. Same illustration. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. Then he says, you brood of vipers. He's speaking to a specific group of men here. He says, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I want you to notice that the fruit that Jesus focuses on here is not their actions, but their words. We will be held accountable, we will be judged as teachers, as preachers, for careless words. Now there's certainly a personal relational dynamic to this that is also convicting but in context, Jesus is talking specifically to the men who are responsible for teaching Israel God's law. And he's accusing them of bad doctrine. And that's what we have to give an account for. And God's people need to have, they need to be careful to question what we hear from those who were called to preach and teach God's Word. Okay? So, in summary, what Jesus is encouraging us this morning to do is to be cautious and careful. Careful in how we treat others. Careful in evaluating our hearts and our position in God's kingdom. Careful in choosing the leaders that we follow and the teaching that we consume. But I want to remind you that all of this is directed at people who are already a part of God's kingdom. He's talking to believers. He's talking to His disciples. 
And even though that's true, what I want to say to you, if, if you're not sure where you stand this morning, and I probably have stirred some stuff up. I, I hope the Spirit has stirred some stuff up, not me. But here's the best news that I can share with you. The best news of the day. Okay, So whatever you're feeling right now, whatever tension is going on, of you kind of questioning, like, am I on this narrow road or this wide road? And how would I know? How do I know what I'm supposed to do, what I'm supposed to believe? Here's the good news, okay? There is not one person in this room is beyond the grace of God. Not me, not you, not any of us is beyond the grace of God. And the Apostle Paul explains entrance into the kingdom far better than I can. And so I'm not, we're not going to do, we don't do altar calls here, okay? I trust that God can work in your heart right where you're sitting, okay? And will continue to work in your heart after you leave today. So I'm not, I'm not making some kind of emotional plea for you to make a decision because then you're tempted to think it was actually you that did it. I just want you to sit and hear God's Word. And I'm going to end this sermon by reading the words of Ephesians 2. And I just want to ask you to consider your heart. I'm not asking you, do you accept God? I'm asking you, does God accept you? And on what basis? Are you confident that He does? And on what basis? We believe in this church that the Word of God and the power of God's Holy Spirit is enough to change your heart. By itself. And so I'm going to read to you um, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, You have been saved. The word grace is a churchy word. It means undeserved favor. It says, And God raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages God might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's a better story. That's a better story than God sitting in heaven and waiting on you 
to figure out how to get your stuff right and join the team. Because you never will. Not by yourself. This is a better story. This is God at work from beginning to end to give your to give you a heart of flesh and take your heart of stone to turn you around from the path that you're on and put you on the right path. And it's not about you. It's about the glory of God. And He will get all the glory for it because He's the one who did it. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your words. We thank You for the encouragement that You've given us as disciples to be careful in how we treat one another. Careful with how we think about um, Your church and the mission that You've called us to. And Father, I pray that as You bring conviction, we would be led to faith and repentance. That we would trust that Your grace is sufficient for us in our weakness. None of us in this room deserves heaven. And the only way we get there is through Christ. Help us, Lord. Help us in our unbelief. I pray that You would do what only You can do and change the hearts of those who have rejected You, have chosen the world up until this day. Give them a new story. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and sing.